If you are able, please stand for the reading of the scripture. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. It is not life more than food, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not, not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. But that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The word of the Lord. In November of 1954, Alfred E. Newman made his debut appearance on the cover of Mad Magazine and what is an iconic image of a red-haired, gap-toothed, scrawny little boy asking the question, what me, worry? Newman's famous motto was changed one time in 1979 after the Three Mile Island nuclear power accident in Pennsylvania. It was changed to this, yes, me, worry. The threat of nuclear weapons, a lingering pandemic, train derailments, mass shootings, climate change, political strife, government corruption, the loss of loved ones, medical bills, AI chatbots. Hopefully I ticked off one of your worry boxes. What, me worry? Yes, me worry. It's as if Jesus has some sense that his disciples may struggle with worry. Six times we have the word Worry in our past passage for today, and three times Jesus says, do not worry. And three times he gives us reasons why we should not worry. And as we start to move through the passage, I want to address a couple things up front that, that might become hang-ups for us as we work through the passage. For one, I want you to notice that Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. He doesn't say, don't plan about tomorrow. He doesn't say, don't think about tomorrow. He's not opposed to planning. He's opposed to worrying. Secondly, I want you to recognize who Jesus is speaking with. Again, we're still in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Galilee. We're up on a mountain. We're with disciples or with those who have chosen to follow Jesus. Right? We can assume at least on this day that they have enough to eat. In other words, Jesus is not speaking to people in the middle of a famine and saying, no, don't worry about what you're going to eat. In fact, later on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus will teach his disciples, when you come across those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are naked, 
disciples of Jesus are to feed them, to give them something to drink, and to clothe them. So we have a different situation here. And third, as kind of idealistic and kind of otherworldly as this teaching might seem, I, I want us to notice that Jesus is not naive in this passage. Uh, Jesus isn't imagining a carefree utopia here. Look, uh, you can go put up the first slide. Look at this first. I'm actually going to go to the end of the passage to start. Verse 34, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Notice how realistic Jesus is here. Jesus says you're going to have trouble today, and you're going to have trouble tomorrow. I think this is a helpful starting place for us as disciples. The idea is not that we as disciples will escape trouble. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus says the opposite. He says, in this life you will have trouble. I think it's tempting in life to to think that um, somehow right over the horizon is a trouble-free zone. Right now we've got trouble in our lives, but, but somewhere out there is a place without trouble. So uh, when we're finally out of the house and our parents can't tell us what to do, trouble-free zone. When we finally have our first real job and we've got a paycheck and we can spend some money, when our kids are finally out of diapers, when we finally get that promotion, when we can finally retire from our job, then there won't be trouble. It'll be kind of like we're on vacation all the time, right? That's kind of the promise. And yet, it never seems to happen, does it? It just seems like no matter where you go, trouble is always following you. Trouble is always there waiting for you. And Jesus is saying here, use your common sense. You got enough trouble on your plate today. Why are you borrowing trouble from tomorrow? And yet we do it. We do it, I think all of us, or most of us, do it all the time, right? We worry about tomorrow. I think there's an Old Testament story that I heard somebody, I think in a book, talk about one time that's a helpful illustration here. The, the story is about the Israelites. They've, they've escaped from Egypt. They're, they're really close to the promised land at this point. It's right there. And Moses sends out these 12 spies to explore the land, see what it's like. Right, see if the people are strong or weak, see how the soil is, see if the cities are fortified, etc. And two of the spies come back and they say, it's just like God promised. It is incredible. It's awesome. They even bring back these big clusters of grapes to show Moses. But then the other ten spies chime in and say, we can't attack those people. They are huge. They're like the giants of old. We look like insects. We're like mere grasshoppers compared to them. When we worry about tomorrow, it's a bit like sending out our own spies into the future to check things out. Give us some idea what we can expect to happen, what we can expect when we arrive tomorrow. And guess what? Again and again, the spies come back to us, and their reports are terrifying, aren't they? Again and again, these spies we've sent out to the future come back to us with the worst possible scenarios. As the old saying goes, I've lived through some terrible things in my life, some of which actually happened. What we fail to realize is that actually most of the things we worry about don't actually materialize. They don't actually happen. And and guess what? Sometimes they do. And what I think we almost always find is we're almost always more resilient than we expected. 
And so what happens is by worrying about tomorrow, it's like we're suffering twice. And Jesus is coming up to you and me and saying, hey, just think about this. This makes no sense. Why are you worrying about things which may happen or may not happen? And besides, think about it. He says, can you add a single hour to your life by worrying? Like, does you, does you worrying about tomorrow, does that somehow change what happens? I can't be the only person here that has somehow thought, but if I worry about this enough, if I imagine the absolute worst scenario, somehow I can head off that worst scenario. Anybody else ever done that? Maybe it's just me. Jesus thinks we're a bunch of worry words. And, and I like this because he's given us some kind of sound, folksy, down-to-earth advice on how to deal with this. I like this. Maybe we can try that out this week, right? All right. Hopefully we're listening. What else does Jesus have for us? Let's go back to the beginning. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Okay? okay. Life does seem to be more than food and clothes, but I still worry. So what do you got, Jesus? Help me out here. Look at the birds of the air. Like, like go bird watching? That's the plan here, Jesus? Is that what we're going to do? We, we can't do that here. We're kind of blocked off from the natural world. But again, we're up on this mountain in Galilee. You can imagine uh, Jesus just pausing the sermon here and saying, no, let's, let's look at the birds. Let's consider them. Let's stop the sermon for a couple minutes. Let's let the birds be your teachers. One of the most influential Christian leaders, authors, Bible teachers of the 20th century was uh, an Englishman named John Stott. And John Stott, he sold millions of books, but he lived a very simple life, quite a contrast to the culture around him. He lived in this uh, small apartment in London. Uh, he would, in solidarity with the poor, avoid having seconds of food. He wore this blue blazer until it was thread, threadbare. And all the royalties, then and, and still now today, he's, he's no longer alive, went to a trust that then trains pastors around the world to read and preach the Bible. And so Stott very much took Jesus' teaching, which we looked at last week, about storing up treasure on earth seriously. And Stott was a rabid bird watcher. I was at dinner years ago with a pastor from England. It's been a while, so I don't, I don't know if I have all the details, but I remember talking to this guy and we started talking about John Stott, um, and he, he, I think is what I remember, he told me the story about preaching in front of John Stott. So if you're a preacher and you preach in front of John Stott, that's a terrifying prospect, right? This is one of the most, I mean, renowned preachers of the last century. And, and what happened was he preaches this sermon, and, and Stott comes up and gives him some feedback and says, the only feedback he gets is, you got something wrong about the birds, he had used an illustration about birds in his sermon, and he got something wrong, and Stott was not happy about that. He actually wrote a book called The Birds Are Teachers. How are birds our teachers? Stott says, from the migration of storks, we learn repentance. From the drinking of pigeons, gratitude. From the soaring of eagles, freedom. From the songs of larks, joy. When we lived on a farm in Illinois, uh, the bird I watched the most was a chicken, which we had some uh, for a number of years. And 
I found that often I was the one who opened up the coop in the morning, and if you waited a while until the sun was out and you finally opened that door, those, those hens, they would just burst out of there. They were so eager to get out of that coop and get, the, get about to working around, scratching around, foraging around for insects and worms and seeds. They never looked happier to me than when they had that freedom to go roam wherever they want, especially on the cow pasture, and seek what they needed and, and find and take what they found. And what you'll notice is if you watch birds, they're actually quite busy, right? They work hard. They're not frantic, but they work hard. They don't, they don't seem to be at the frenetic pace that so much of our culture is at today. Birds can, in fact, be our teachers. And one of the things that Jesus says that birds teach us is how much God cares about us. Birds are valuable, Jesus says, but you, you who are made in the image of your creator, do you know how much you're worth? If so, why are you spending so much time worrying about your life? As I mentioned earlier, I think one of the reasons I think we worry, it's not the only reason, but I think it kind of gives us this sense of control. But again, like by worrying, we're doing something. We're, we're able to control the future, which I don't think is true. But there's a deeper problem behind that. More than just a waste of energy, it's a misdirection of trust. Think about your child. If you had a young child... And your child every day was worried about the next day, whether they would have food to eat and whether you would give them clothes to wear. How would that feel as a parent? It would be very hurtful because you would, you would, you would realize that that child doesn't have enough trust in you that you're going to feed that child the next day. See, what we, we say we believe in God who created us, who sustains us, who loves us, but often our actions tell a different story. Often by how we store up treasure, as we talked about last week, or this week where we worry, we're telling a different story. That we don't really trust God. And Jesus is reminding us, don't, you know, do you think, it, you think I would let you go without eating? Don't you know how valuable you are to me? Don't you know how loved you are? And then Jesus has his disciples, again, they're up on this mountain, Perhaps, depending on the time of year, there's wildflowers. And he says, look at these flowers. They don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If you're, um, if you're following Midway's Bible plan, thumbs up to you. And you're also in the middle of reading about Solomon, right? Building his temple, building a palace for himself. You all talked in Sunday school about asking for wisdom. Solomon was kind of a big deal, wasn't he? And Jesus says, even all his wealth and gold and finest clothes, he didn't look as good as these flowers. I think about times I've been in, out in, particularly in the Rocky Mountains in the summer, and, and the snow has now melted off at this point, and, and the ground is warming up, and, and you get out in these fields, and they just burst with wild flowers. Columbines and Indian paintbrushes, bluebells, fireweed, lupine, elephant head. If you have seen a field of wildflowers in the Rocky Mountains, you know King Solomon doesn't stand a chance. It's why often you, you go out, whether you're in Texas with the bluebells or in Colorado or Ohio, you take a picture of your family in the wildflowers, and 20, 20 years later, as long as the picture was a good picture, the wildflowers look good, your outfit not so good. 
Jesus is saying, these flowers, man, they don't just survive like the birds. They are magnificent. They are stunning. They are works of art. God lavishes on them the care of a craftsman, of a painter working on his or her masterpiece. And yet, despite all that, they're gone tomorrow. Think about yourself, Jesus says. If that's how your father takes care of wildflowers, how much more is he going to take care of you? You see what Jesus is doing here? Like we might have started out hoping that Jesus would give us some technique on worrying. And Jesus is kind of practical with us at a few points. Don't borrow trouble. Don't suffer twice. Don't worry about things you can't change. Use your common sense. But now we're moving into a deeper place. Now we're seeing that our worry, it can't just be dealt with with some techniques. In other words, wait for it. Telling yourself that it's not reasonable to worry doesn't usually work. Reminding yourself that it's not logical to worry about things can only take you so far. That's probably shocking to all of you. As helpful as those things might be, and they can be helpful, like they don't do what going to the one who loves us, who loves our souls, who our heavenly parent who adores us can do for us. Who for all his care, the birds of the air, for all the work and genius he puts in, into crafting coneflowers and toad shade trilliums and wild germanians and Dutchman's breeches, that's nothing compared to what he pours into you. You see how important this is for you to understand? Jesus begins this teaching with therefore, and when we hear those words, we can often say, you know, what is it therefore? What it's therefore is because Jesus is building off the last teaching, and if you were here with us last week, the last teaching was on building up treasures for ourselves on earth and not serving money, right? And we say, how do I do that? That sounds scary. You do it by transferring your faith, your trust from that stuff that we talked about was rotting away from the God of money who doesn't care about you to this heavenly Father who loves you and will care for you. Jesus, man, Jesus is smart. Jesus understands it's going to be hard to release earthly treasure. He's not naive. Jesus understands the only way you're going to be able to do that is you can transfer that trust onto something else, onto something else more secure. And he says, you do have it. You have it. It's God. How do you be sure? Look at the birds of the air. Look at the flowers of the field. But it's still not enough. We need, that takes us deeper, but it's not enough. We need purpose. This is, I think, the most important lesson we learn in this passage. It's also probably the hardest to understand. I think we understand that some common sense technique is helpful and help us move away from worry. I think we understand it's essential that we understand that God loves us, that he's deeply invested in us, that he wants to move us away from a life of anxiety to a life of trust, but we need something else. See, if we don't see, if we don't understand what Jesus says next, it's going to be like a little like playing whack-a-mole with our worries. The worries are just going to keep bubbling up in us. We're going to whack them down. We're going to whack them down, but they're just going to keep bubbling up to the surface. That might work for a little bit, but it doesn't get to the source. Because I think ultimately worry and anxiety cannot be taken on face on. Let me explain what I mean. Say worry is your problem, anxiety is your problem. You could spend a lifetime, read every book about worry and anxiety, get every technique you got, and you can go to town on your worry, and I don't, you might make some progress, and that's good. I don't want to say that at all. There's 
place for that. I don't think you're going to deal with it fully. There's good tools out there that are good to use, but we've got to look in our discipleship toolbox because we've got something essential. See, at the heart of this teaching, Jesus is saying we're all seekers. As John Stott says in his commentary, it's not natural for people to just drift through life like a plankton. We need something to live for. We need something to give us meaning to our existence. We, we seek. We, we want something to set our hearts and minds on. We are at the very core seekers. We're hungry for meaning and purpose. Jesus knows this. And he says, hey, look at the pagans. They're seeking something. Let me put up that next slide. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your father knows that you need them. Notice this word, run. The pagans are running after these things. Like, they are frantic. The birds are busy. The pagans are frantic. Imagine, you know, if all of a sudden the birds started to consider us. Look at these people. They look like chickens running around with their heads cut off. They're always in a hurry. I flew over one of their houses. They have literally mounds of food in there. You wouldn't believe it. And they are so anxious. And imagine then if the flowers of the field considered us. And they could talk and they said to each other, can you believe how much anxiety these people have about the way they look? All this anxiety they have about wrinkles on their face, all this time they spend worrying about their outfits, what they look like. I don't understand it. They're a work of art. Every last one of them. They're a masterpiece from their creator, and they can't believe it. I tell you, it's crazy. See, see, Jesus isn't just talking about hypothetical birds and flowers. Right up north from him is a place called Sepphoris. It's where Romans lived. It's where Jesus, likely with his father, growing up in Nazareth, it was just not too far from Nazareth, he would have gone and worked with his father. And if Jesus had worked in Sepphoris, he would have seen a place where a lot of people were chasing wine and women and entertainment and where opulence was a way of life. It was a world that revolved around entertainment, food, drink, beauty. You might just catch a glimpse of such a world this evening. Maybe with a hundred other million people. Wouldn't it be better if like all of us just went bird watching this evening? Tell, am I right? Like, would we be a net positive if like a hundred million people, instead of like eating the wings of birds and, and, and watching football, like, bro, like let's just all go bird watching. Like, all right, I, I think we'd be a net positive there. Maybe I'm wrong. Talk to me after the sermon. Jesus has this vision of people frantically running around, and he knows they need meaning and purpose, and he's saying, don't do that. That's not you. They're all frantically running, searching around for drink and entertainment. Don't do that. That's not you. You've got a deeper purpose. Don't be spending your energy worrying about what you're going to eat or drink or wear. Your purpose is this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. See all these people, they're so frantic, they're running around, they got, they got ambition, but they got the wrong kind of ambition. They've got ambition for themselves and not for God. They are, as maybe Thomas Burton might say, climbing ladders 
but ladders leaned up against the wrong walls. And you don't even realize until you get to the top of the ladder that the whole time you've had the ladder leaned up against the wrong wall. You've been chasing the wrong thing. To long for the reign of King Jesus in our lives and the lives around us in our world, that's what we're seeking. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, to want nothing more than God, and to seek to live in a way that God wants us to live, that's what we're seeking for. What does that mean? Well, we're about two-thirds of the way through Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount, and I just have to look back and say, well, what has Jesus taught us so far in this sermon? He's taught us to be salt and light to the world around us, to season it, to be a contrast community, to shine light into it. We're to seek a deeper kind of righteousness than the Pharisees that moves us away from anger and lust and lying and revenge to be people of reconciliation and sexual integrity and marital faithfulness and truth-telling and love of enemy. We're to practice the spiritual disciplines of giving to the needy in secret, of praying to our Father in heaven and the prayer closet of fasting and turning away from the accumulation of wealth and possessions. It would be hard for me to emphasize how important this line is to this sermon, but to the entire life of the follower of Jesus. We are called to seek first the kingdom of God. Nothing must come before seeking the kingdom of God. It's our north star. It's that target that we're aiming for. We're like that Olympian who Everything in their life is moving towards winning that gold medal. Bird watching is a hobby. Watching football on TV is a hobby. Not following Jesus. Don't confuse the two. Following Jesus is not something you do on Sunday morning. It's not something you do when you have time. It's not an addition to your life. It is the thing you seek first. Everything else hinges upon that. And guess what? We can't miss this too. Because Jesus says, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, when you are honed in on that, when you are zeroed in on seeking first the kingdom, it's not that these other things go away. They find their proper place. We still have needs. We still seek other things. But it's only when we seek God first that all the other needs and all the other pursuits find their proper place, including our worries. And that story of, about that most of you probably know about Mary and Martha uh, in Luke's gospel, Martha is distracted by all the busyness and work while their sister Mary is sitting near Jesus. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Jesus wants us to move us as disciples from worried and frantic Marthas to peaceful Marys. By reminding us that other stuff has a place. But the most important thing is one thing. And it's seeking first the kingdom of God. When we seek first the kingdom of God, we will still run into trouble every day. We will still struggle at times with worry. But by now, they will have found their proper place. Because now we're seeking the one thing 